James Comey, it's really surreal and incredible, really, for me to be interviewing you for 20 Questions With, because I was a national radio host on LBC on the 28th of October 2016, just about to go to air. We were five hours ahead of you, of course, in the UK, when you, it was made public, your decision to investigate Hillary Clinton for those emails. So it was an extraordinarily exciting time and moment that so many big headlines coming from America and the build up to that Trump election hit us just as we were going to air. So to be interviewing you now, having presented, you know, a few hours on that show at the time is it's well, it's a privilege and it's and it's extraordinary to me. A very warm welcome to Twenty Questions with. I'm gonna start actually by asking you not about your new novel, your first novel, Central Park West. Uh, but I will ask you about that. But first, I'm six foot three, and I, I quite enjoy being six foot three, but I'm really interested to know what it's like being six foot eight. <laughs> it's not all that exciting. I think it's a marginal difference from six three. I am weirdly not tall in my mind because I grew late. I grew really at the beginning of university. And so I am your size or slightly smaller in my imagination. I notice it when people, people say two things about me uh, when they meet me. One, thank goodness, you're much funnier than I, I knew. And second, you're much taller than I knew. And that's, you're I'm much taller than I knew, frankly. But did you have to be a little self-aware? Did you have to be a little bit careful at your height not to be intimidating, not to be imposing on, you know, you, you ran the FBI. And I haven't even mentioned that in my introduction. You were director of the, the FBI between 2013 and 2017. You were deputy attorney general before that as well. You've held really, really significant and powerful roles in public office. And of course, we'll touch on that later. But did you have to be careful with your physical presence, given your power? Yes. And, and I remember first being told that by my wife when I was a federal prosecutor in New York trying cases. And I used to practice my jury addresses for her so she could give me the brutal feedback that only someone who loves you can give you. And I remember her watching me one day and I'm thinking I'm like a TV prosecutor. And so I'm walking back and forth while I'm talking to the imaginary jury, which was her sitting in our living room. And she said, why do you keep moving like that? And I said, well, I think that's what lawyers do. And she said, you're six feet, eight inches tall. You scare people, stand still and stand back. Don't be leaning over a jury. And so since that moment, I've tried to be, again, I don't think of myself as a tall person. I've tried to be conscious of that. And I remember thinking about it consciously when I first encountered Donald Trump, because I knew that my size might be uh, something he was threatened by. So yes, is the answer. And I'm also curious to know, because in this country, there's this idea that when a, a minister loses their job, whether they resign or, or they're fired or that the government loses a general election, they lose a ministerial car. And from one moment to the next, their power evaporates. What's it been like for you? You're an author now. You wrote that best-selling non-fiction book, A Higher Loyalty. And you've now written this book, as I said, Central Park West. What's it like? And you're many other things, of course, as well. But what's it like losing that power? And in, in your case, again, you know, overnight, Trump fired you. What's it like? It was disorienting because unlike nearly every other government job, whether it's elected or appointed, the FBI director's term is set at 10 years. And a president under our laws can terminate that. But my conception of the job was I'll be here for a decade and even though I knew I had a problem, my relationship with Donald Trump, I 
I thought I was going to be there for another six years. And so it was a complete surprise to me. And it felt like being left on a train platform while a bullet train takes off without you. And so it was disorienting. And it took me a while to find my footing again, because I every job I felt in jeopardy of, of losing or about to leave, I was able to mentally prepare for the next thing. And this, there was no mental preparation. And how do you cope with the absence of structure, imposing your own structure on your life? Because one of the things that fascinates me about you is that you've been able to juggle so much in your life and in your career. You've got five children. One of your daughters has followed you into the Attorney General's office for the Southern District of New York. So you've got a busy family life. You've done immensely powerful things, as I've said, professionally. Now that you don't have that same structure of being the director of the FBI, you're writing novels, you're doing publicity, you're doing all sorts of other things. How do you work out your day? How do you work out your week? I love the absence of structure. One of the things I found most difficult about government service was that my life was scheduled and I was almost never alone and constantly being watched. And I heard another author recently describe himself in a way that fits me. He said, I'm a socially adept introvert. And that's true of me. I can do all of the things I have to do, give speeches and shake hands, but I don't get energy from it. I'd rather sit in my backyard and look at a tree. And so I love that I can wake up without an alarm clock. I love that my day is whatever I want to do with the day. And so there's no one following me, no one staring at me, no one saying, okay, this meeting's over, it's been 15 minutes. I I treasure, love the lack of structure. I'm interested to hear you talk about looking at trees because I'm a great lover of nature myself, perhaps most particularly birds. I've written a book called How to See Birds, trying to offer people a key to that incredible world. And in New York, as I know, partly through being friendly with Simon Sharma, Sir Simon Sharma, the historian who lives in, in New York State, that there are some fantastic birds out there. Is it true or is it a myth that you used to share on social media pictures of nature until that anonymous account became public? Yes, it's true. I had a, uh, I don't think I did much posting I had a Twitter account so I could follow the news and follow people. I was interested in knowing their thoughts. It was back in a day when at least maybe Twitter was in reality, but certainly seemed slightly less toxic uh, in, to my eyes. But yeah, it was exposed. I had a Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian philosopher I studied a lot in university, an account in that name, and it was exposed. I don't think I posted pictures. I used to take pictures, speaking of birds, of the pigeons outside the FBI director's window on one of the high floors of the FBI and send them to my children. But I don't think I posted those publicly. And I totally get you on birds. People don't understand us. They, they think that we're just staring at birds. No, it's much more meaningful than that. What's it like making the transition from writing nonfiction, James, to writing a novel? How did you find that? Was it daunting? Did you enjoy it? Was it in some way cathartic? Did you achieve what you wanted to achieve? Talk to us about the journey to becoming a novelist, because it's a big step. Yeah. And one I'm still nervous about because I've found it so addictive that I want it to succeed. And so I, I really hope this book works because this is what I want to do until I'm old and foolish. But I I resisted the idea of writing fiction. The, the editor of my second nonfiction book, which was a collection of stories from cases I had done, first of all, I used to refer to parts of the book as this scene and that scene. And I would say, man, this, this isn't a scene. This is my life. <laughs> 
And he would say, I know, but you write dialogue, you write with pace, you you could write fiction. Have you ever thought about it? And I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. Make a long story short, the farther I got away from government service, the easier I found that to imagine. And so I tried it and found it harder than nonfiction in the sense that nonfiction, at least in my experience, was about telling about a thing that happened and getting that thing right. Get the details right, be truthful, be accurate, be complete. And so that's just about work. And imagination is forbidden. And the task is tell the thing in a way that holds attention. So writing is is obviously an important part of it. I found fiction to be harder because imagination was everything. And you not only had to imagine characters in a story, you had to stay with them and keep their voices consistent, keep the story making sense. And and there was nothing to check, nothing to just capture from a memo and, re and report to the readers. And so in that sense, it was harder, but so much more fun because I could go in my mind's eye to these places I've been, places I had tried cases and take the reader with me. And I would get lost. I would write for hours and hours. The other thing is you can write anywhere in fiction because you're not carrying around trial transcripts or memos or books. You have your laptop and you have your head and I found that really, really fun. So there's huge freedom in writing fiction. You say that imagination is everything, but to go back to that word structure in a slightly different context, clearly there's structure as well, even in fiction. Were you conscious of learning some basic rules of story writing before you put pen to paper or before you started tapping on your keyboard? And how far do you think you diverted from those norms, if at all? I certainly wasn't conscious of any studying any techniques or tools of story writing. I've always loved to write. I've always thought and communicated in terms of stories. I remember in school, I would study people and situations with an eye towards remembering it and taking it home and telling my family at dinner the story. And I wrote, I was a journalist in high school and college. I wrote some fiction before I went into government, and it was impossible to write or think about fiction. So I've always loved stories, I've always loved writing. And I'm married to someone who, unlike me, has read a tremendous amount of fiction and has a great eye for story. And so she would imagine story, tell me, this is what I'm thinking. And we would debate it over coffee in the morning, watching birds. And and I would say, okay, then let me go write that. And I would go write it, and she would read the Google Doc at night, every night and give me loving and brutal feedback. And then we would iterate and I'd write again and write again. And and so with her ear for story and my love of writing stories, we sort of stumbled forward to what is Central Park West, which I'm happy with. So you mentioned dialogue and dialogue is very prominent in the book. And characters are obviously essential to the plot. I mean, this is a thriller and quite a bit of it takes place in a courtroom. We have to be really careful not to give anything away because that would defeat the purpose. But I want to take two characters and I want you to just briefly describe what you felt you were doing with them. They're obviously absolutely axiomatic to the plot. So Nora and then Benny, if you would, James. Yeah. Nora and Benny were both inspired by real people. And in a real way, that's what makes it easier for me in some ways to write fiction because it's it's kind of non-fiction-y fiction. And I've been in these courtrooms, I've been in these cases, I've been in these conversations. And so I'm really, I'm not writing memoir, but I am trying to capture 
tone and feeling that I've personally experienced. And so start with Benny. I, when I was doing mafia cases in New York, I worked with a person who was a legendary figure in New York law enforcement named Kenny McCabe, who died at 59 in 2006. And unknown to most people, but such a legend in the in the law enforcement community that the New York Times wrote an obituary about him. And he was the best there ever was, a great friend of mine. And we he had a certain way of speaking and acting and talking that I can still close my eyes and hear him, <clears throat> excuse me, hear him in my mind's eye. And so that's who I tried to pattern Benny after. And it helped me keep the voice right because I would read aloud what I had just written and see if it felt to me like Kenny speaking to me. He would, in 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 his way, I don't do a great Brooklyn accent, but an enormous man with a Brooklyn, New York accent. And he would boom at me and call me Mr. Smooth, Mr. Smooth. And he called me Mr. Smooth because it was a, a backhanded compliment that he thought I was good on my feet. And I would call him back Mr. Ruff. And... And then I would say something about what a good person he was. And he would say, I'm not as good a person as you think I am. And then I would say, well, did I say you were a really good person or something like that? And we would have this banter, tried to capture it. The life of Benny, one of my favorite characters, I'm glad you asked about him, is, is filled with this person that I loved and knew. Nora is also based on someone I loved and still know. My daughter Maureen, when I was writing this, she was not only the chief of the violent and organized crime unit in this U.S. attorney's office in Manhattan, but she was on her feet in courtroom 318 of the old courthouse, still there, prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator and abusing a lot of young girls. And I was forbidden to go by Maureen. She said, Dad, if you go, it'll be a thing. And we don't need a thing whatever that means. And so I didn't go. Patrice, my wife, went and I got secondhand reports of how the trial was going. And at that point, my plan was for the protagonist, the federal prosecutor who is going through these amazing experiences in the book, was going to be a man. And it was then that I switched it and thought, you know, my oldest child, my oldest daughter is on her feet, not just in a courtroom. She's in courtroom 318, which is exactly the courtroom I was in when I prosecuted John and Joe Gambino when she was a little girl, the very same courtroom. And so it became very easy to switch the protagonist to a woman about Maureen's age, not as closely based on Maureen as, as Benny is on my friend Kenny McCabe, but inspired significantly by her. And what made it easy for me, probably easier than most people write fiction is, I could close my eyes and think about my girl and think about my buddy and and write their story in a way that that was a joy for me to be in that world with them. You said earlier that speaking publicly, you don't get energy from that. You're putting, you put yourself out there as director of the FBI, particularly, of course, in the build-up to that election in 2016. You've put yourself out there as a non-fiction writer, and now you're putting yourself out there as a fiction writer. Does this in any way feel more exposing than either of the other things because although you're not dealing with facts and you're not telling your own personal story you are being creative and you're opening your creativity up to the world i don't know whether i'd say more exposing i i i grimace a little at the prospect of 
sort of becoming public again in this way, because I, you know, I don't love criticism. I don't know anyone who does. I, I've gotten better at not seeing as much. I only open the Twitter window just a crack. So I can't let a lot of the hate in. But but I, I'm not loving the prospect of being out there again. My family's definitely not. But but they understand how much I love doing this. And they've been a big part of the process because they're all proofreaders and brutal feedback givers. So yeah, I I don't love the idea of being back out there. But if I'm going to do this, I would rather do this than work at a law firm, for example, where I could be much more anonymous. And so I'm certainly that it's fine to do the public piece again, because it's part of the, the nature of the work that I really want to do. I want to just develop that idea of hate. It sounds a terrible thing, but I'm on Twitter probably too much. And I'd say in, in within the context of British politics, I'm left of center, but certainly not hard left. So I do battle with the hard left and the hard right. And neither of those flanks likes me very much. And sometimes I get an enormous amount of hate pouring in. You found yourself in some ways stranded in the middle between, on the one hand, people who might have resented you in the Hillary Clinton camp or supporters of Hillary Clinton. And then on the other hand, fans of Donald Trump. How, how did you cope with being that man in the middle? It's, look, it's, in some ways, it's, I'm sure you've experienced this. It, there's a freedom because you're stuck and there's nothing you can do about it. It's depressing because I'm sure this is true in your case as well. Our bubbles of confirmation bias are so powerful that the people at the left, of, imagine American politics as a bell curve, the people at the far left who hate me don't realize there's a group of people at the far right who hate me, who they also hate. And so how could... How can they all hate this person? But they have no idea. The people on Fox News have no idea that it's, you know people on some other uh, more left-focused network have bad things to say about me. And so you just have to smile or you would cry and recognize that there's always going to be partisans who are trapped in a bubble, who have powerful feelings about things. And I like to imagine, and I think the data is there, that there, the far greater number of people are somewhere in the lumpy middle of the bell curve who don't have those passions and those bubbles that they're trapped in. Talk to us about location. You were born in New York, in Yonkers, I think. Is that right? Yep. yep. And of course, the title of this book is Central Park West. And I'm, I'm interested to know how you experience location in the writing of the novel and how important you felt that was to the atmosphere and how strongly you lent on your own experience of geography. It was very important to me. I wanted to take readers to the places I've been and to have them feel it and see it as clearly as I can in my mind's eye. This led to some some uh, friction with my editor who thought in some places I had gone too far and was writing for Architectural Digest. And so I had to cut some of that back, which is fine. That's what his job is. I mean, and you go you go into a lot of detail as well about the physical environment, don't you? About the courtroom, say. Yeah, I want you to, as a reader, to be there with me because I am when I'm writing and I'm closing my eyes and I'm standing there in the courtroom in courtroom three eighteen and I can see those strange stone wainscoted walls and these intimidating ceiling lights, and so I want you as a reader to experience that as well. So it's really important to me to get it right, and I. 
I remember these things because I've spent so much time in those places, but I went and made sure I got it all right. I obviously had Maureen read the book and fact check me and she caught a, which no one would have noticed, but people on the inside, but I would have been horrified at the mistake. I had her unit, the violent and organized crime unit on the wrong floor. It had moved after I had been the chief federal prosecutor and I, I had missed that. So I went and got all these places. There's, there's a scene that takes place in a park just outside of New York. And I originally wrote it. I remembered that the paths were cinder. And so I wrote about one of the characters turning and her shoes scraping on the cinder. Well, before I went and submitted the manuscript, I went to those places and they had paved the path. It was now asphalt. So I could no longer write about the grinding of the cinder. And look, I, I know that seems maniacal about those details, but I want it to be true to life. And if someone goes to those places and counts the number of stairs, I got it right. You said that your wife has read a lot of fiction and rather implied that you hadn't read or haven't read so much fiction. Take us back for a moment to those years as the director of the FBI, when you're dealing with what I can only imagine is quite exquisitely, extraordinarily high-pressured environments. And you're having to make enormously high-pressured decisions, one of which might have, we still don't know, you really hope it didn't, impact the, might have impacted the result of the 2016 US presidential election. When you got home at night, would you open a thriller? Would you open a book? How did you wind down? How did you decompress? Or did you go to sleep churning over the decisions, churning over the thoughts of the day? Did you, were you able to relax? Uh, yes. <laughs> Although I had to be intentional about finding relaxations. Question whether you can intentionally find relaxation. I don't know. But I the first thing is I, I found it impossible to read fiction related to crime, terrorism, or espionage. Really, from 1987 on, I remember reading Scott Turow's Presumed Innocence in 1987, just before I became a federal prosecutor in Manhattan. And that was it. And and I tried, but I found that I just couldn't, in my time where I was trying to relax, read the work. The problem with being FBI director is the work never leaves you. And I had a facility inside my house for classified communications and classified documents. I had security people in my house. And so getting away from the job was very, very difficult. And so I did it through the same things I used to preach to my workforce about, through exercise, sleep, and spending time with my family. That, that Those are my ways to try and protect myself from the stresses of the job. And I would read nonfiction, things that were off axis, not entirely, but off axis of what I was doing. I remember reading a Jerusalem, a biography by one of your prior guests uh, about the life, the thousands of years of the city of Jerusalem. And that's not entirely off axis from my work, but different enough that I could see it as a form of relaxation. And, but again, the challenge of the bureau job is that it's the decision to use the term exciting about the time. October 28th, just before the 2016 presidential election, I would choose a different word than exciting. It was a freaking nightmare. But but somehow through those disciplines, again, of being with my family, exercising, not over-medicating. I love wine. Another thing I've always worried about with people in high-stress jobs, you you don't want to over-medicate. You know, two glasses tops, but that also helped. And Somehow, I've always been a good compartmenter, if that's an actual word, and was was taught, again, by my wife from an early age that when I'm home with my family, I have to be there, not be physically there and be mentally someplace else, 
And so I developed habits of mind that allowed me to shut it off, at least on a short-term basis. All of that helped me. Clearly, you have a fantastic support structure in the shape of your family. Do you have a lot of friends? Do you have good, solid friendships that you're able to rely on? And how does friendship work when you are A, so busy, and B, doing such sensitive jobs? I don't have a lot of friends. I have a small group of close, long-standing friends who will tell me the truth about everything, especially about me, which is really, really important, not just as an author, but as a leader. It's so hard as director of the FBI to hear the truth about yourself. People are standing up when you come in the room. They're dressing like they're going to a religious service. When they come to see you, they speak with a catch in their, their throat. And so finding people who can tell you that when you're wrong, when you're prideful, when you are missing something is essential. And so I always tried to have one of those people at my side, and I did at the FBI, who would delight in coming back into your private office and saying, dude, you're full of shit. And then laughing, <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have to make that decision. Man, you are screwed. And But having that at your side is really important. And there's a handful of those people in my life. But the most important is my family. I I, you're, you're right. It is the center of my life. I married well, and we have five kids, all of whom are focused on public service and who love me enough to tell me the truth, especially about me. I can imagine that if you're a criminal, if you're getting on the wrong side of the state, that having James Comey coming after you is not much fun. What's it like on the other side? What's it like when you are heading up the FBI or when you are prosecuting? Above all, in a way, what's it like when you're taking on the mafia from your side of the fence? You've got, of course, you've, you've got the law behind you and no doubt you've got a certain amount of protection. Was it ever scary? Did you ever feel intimidated? Did you have to be brave? I don't think so. I don't think I ever had to be brave in those roles. One of the good things about the American mafia so I'm going to contrast it to the Sicilian mafia in a second. But the good thing about the American mafia is one of the rules that their members are told and promised to abide at their induction ceremony is that we don't harm law enforcement. And I've always treasured that rule as a member of law enforcement. And it and they don't have such a rule in the Sicilian Cosa Nostra. And I think the difference is explained by the power of the state. In Sicily, at many times throughout history, the Cosa Nostra was more powerful than the state. And so they could kill law enforcement, prosecutors, and cops with impunity. Not so in the United States, not so in the UK. And I've been involved in cases where people associated with Italian organized crime harmed people in law enforcement. And in those moments, actually a two-part race began. All of us in law enforcement trying to find the person who had killed a, a federal agent and the mob trying to find him so that they could deliver a message that we will not tolerate this. One of my favorite stories of my beloved friend, Kenny McCabe, is that he was conducting surveillance once in Brooklyn, and a young, hot-headed mobster saw him and spit on his car. And Kenny started to get out, knowing Kenny probably to teach that guy a lesson, when that mobster's boss grabbed him roughly and shouted at him, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever disrespect him like that again. And so there's a lot wrong, obviously, because it's organized crime with organized crime. But part of the organization, at least in the United States, is we don't harm law enforcement. That's bad for business, not done. And again, it's self-interested because the state can crush them if it focuses on them. 
And so I worried less about organized criminals than those who were too stupid to realize that I was just one among thousands and harming me would make no difference. So I, I've had threats. And when I was a young prosecutor, I used to have a guy I sent away, send greeting cards to me saying, I hope you and your family are remaining healthy. So you're there when I get out of jail. And those kinds of things are unsettling, especially to your family, but not coming from Cosa Nostra, American Cosa Nostra. One of the reasons I've never gone to Sicily when I was a prosecutor is I stick out and they don't have the rule. I want to know how you deal with bad apples within the system, within the FBI. How do you do your best to make sure that your law enforcement agents and you were responsible? How many people were you responsible for, James? 38,000. Right. It's a lot of people to be responsible for. And clearly you deputized a lot of that responsibility. But how do you, as the leader of such a powerful and important institution, do your very best to make sure that those who are charged with upholding the law don't themselves break the law or cut corners? By starting with the humility to recognize that you are flawed, all humans are flawed, and in a collection of 38,000 of them, someone is going to do something they shouldn't do every single day. And your job is to put in place the structures to be able to find those people who are misbehaving and punish them in a way that both prevents them from offending again and sends a message of cultural direction to the organization that is not going to be tolerated. But look, all, all people do things they shouldn't do. People in positions of power, like all humans, fall in love with their own perspective and abuse that power. So it's one of the reasons I created a course to study the FBI's interaction with Dr. Martin Luther King. I wanted the organization to know that we are capable of doing great good, but we're capable of doing great harm if we abuse our power. And so we have to stare at it and study it and worry about it every day. And I took a lot of criticism from former FBI people that I was bad-mouthing my own organization. And I, I get that reaction. But if you don't stare at your own weaknesses and flaws, they won't go away. You'll just miss them and they'll they'll spread. When we watch movies, American movies, you might quite often see a, a clash of authority, a competitiveness between, say, the FBI and local law enforcement. How does it work now in the United States? Are, are there clear delineations, clear boundaries between the remit of the FBI, say, and the NYPD, the New York Police Department, just for example? Is there a proper spelling out of the different jurisdictions? How do you ensure, how does, how, how does America ensure that there's not quite a separation of powers, but that the law enforcement agencies respect each other, respect those boundaries where they are, and also work together collaboratively? Competition can be healthy sometimes, but it could also lead to important information being withheld from other agencies that could potentially lead to disaster. How, how do you get that right? And do you think it is being got right? You can never get it fully right. I used to describe our relationship with the NYPD, ours, the FBI, as we're blood sworn enemies, except when we're living together and having a baby. That is, these are two enormous, proud law enforcement organizations in a crowded space with authorities that allow them really to reach the work of the other. And sometimes that leads to friction and tension and dysfunction, 
Other times it results in what I mean by living together and having a baby is the oldest joint terrorism task force in the United States is the FBI and NYPD. And those people work together beautifully and do great good. And so as a leader, you just have to constantly worry about it. Know that this friction is there. Know that the solution is that it's hard to hate up close and that you can, I used to hear this all the time from people in the FBI that say, ah, oh, the NYPD, they suck, except uh, except Sally here, who's at the next desk, and Fred over there, He's they're good people. Well, why do they say that about? Because they work together. And so putting together, integrating those human beings so they see each other up close was the solution. Now, I don't, I, I think there's goodness, as you said, in your question, in the in the tension, in the competition, right? There's two federal prosecutor's offices in New York City. It's crazy to have it split by the Brooklyn Bridge. And I used to think if I were king, I would have just one federal prosecutor in New York City. And then when I became the boss of all federal prosecutors, I realized, you know, I kind of like it this way because that friction, that tension makes them compete. And there's an energy in New York in general as a city, but there's an energy in New York law enforcement that at least in part is stoked by that competition between those offices, between the Manhattan DA and the U.S. Attorney's Office, between the NYPD and the FBI. So it's a recipe for a bit of a hairball, as they say in New York, but it's but it's also a recipe for energy and creativity if it's managed right. And so the end to my answer is you just have to watch it and manage it constantly. I love that expression. It's difficult to hate up close. And a lot of social media users could learn from that that expression because if you actually meet the people that you've turned into monsters, you might very well get on well with them. I want to take you back to a different part of your career just very briefly, and that was when you were Deputy Attorney General. And you'll correct me if I've if I put this in the wrong way, but as I understand it, you signed off on waterboarding in 2005, I think, as a technique. But later in 2013, you described it as a form of torture. How difficult was that to do, to sign off on that, if I've got that right? And did you simply feel compelled to do so, that your own personal views on it had to be taken out of the equation? Did they have to be taken out of the equation? Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. In, in, so your dates are right. In 2005, lawyers at the Department of Justice were asked to write a memo answering a question as to whether certain techniques, including waterboarding, violated the statute in the United States against torture, which required the intentional infliction of severe physical pain or suffering. And those lawyers answered one question in a way that I thought was okay and one question in a way I, that I fought. The, the question they answered in a way I thought was okay is that given the way our Congress defined torture in our law, waterboarding someone a single time didn't necessarily cross that threshold. And so that you could construct the interrogation in a way that didn't violate the statute. The second question, which was harder and that I very much disagreed with is, no no interrogation was ever done using a single technique. So the question was, in com combination, did these treatment of another human being violate the statute? And there I disagreed very much with the conclusion of the Department of Justice and fought them on it. And I'd lost all my leverage because I'd already quit. But I, I believe very much then that this was torture in any sense in which human beings use that term. I guess Congress is human beings. But in the way in which it was defined in U.S. law was different than the way in which you and I think of the term. And so, yeah, I always thought of it as torture and awful. And I pushed the Bush administration to stop doing it, not for a legal reason, but because this is just awful and immoral. 
So I did find that that's actually the most difficult thing I've ever been involved in because there was a direct conflict between my feelings as a person who wants to be a moral human being and my obligation as a supervisor of lawyers who are being asked a very specific question to interpret a statute. So yeah, and I'm not sure that I got it right, by the way. I still question myself when I teach. I ask my students to critique how I approach this because it is the hardest thing. Now, this may sound strange for people to hear, but the 2016 nightmare was nothing compared to the nightmare over torture. We've only got three questions left, and I, I could ask you another 23 questions at least. Let's go back to that moment in 2016. How do you look back on it now? You went public with this investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. That didn't necessarily follow much precedent because the FBI could keep these things quiet or tended to keep them quiet, if I'm right. Do you think now, with the benefits of hindsight, and this is not a leading question, I'm really curious to know how you look back on it. Do you think now that you got it right? I do. I, I certainly respect reasonable people who see it differently, but I... I've thought about it a thousand times or more since then. And we faced two doors and they both led to hell. Uh, we chose the one that I think was the least awful of the choices because people forget this, but we, I personally had announced the end of the Clinton investigation uh, in early summer. We were done. There was no basis to charge Secretary Clinton. Go away, Republicans. This is done. And then I and the Attorney General defended that conclusion in front of Congress repeatedly over the summer. And Republicans hammered and hammered me. I said, nope, there's nothing there. We've been through this. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And then I find out on October 27th that there may be a very significant there there. Far more emails than we'd ever found before. Emails from a period early in her tenure where we'd found none where there might be evidence that would support a prosecution and the result might change. These are all the things my team told me on October 27th. And so I had a choice. Uh, the Department of Justice wanted to go get a search warrant, take action to go get and look at those emails, which I agreed with. And so do I speak or do I conceal? And, I, and I, the reason I say it that way is I had affirmatively told the American people in Congress repeatedly, this is done, you can trust us. Go vote in this election because we're finished. There's nothing there. Believe us. And now I know that's not true. And the result could end up differently when the FBI is finished going through the emails. If I don't speak about that, I'm concealing something. And so which is worse? They're both terrible. And I chose the one that was, I think, the least bad. And I think that decision will stand the test of time. I understand why people might see it differently. But I ask people, try to play out the imaginary counterfactual or I don't say something and the American people go to a presidential election having been frankly affirmatively misled by their lead law enforcement organization, what happens then, not just to Hillary Clinton, but what happens to our institutions? But again, I the thing I wish most fervently is that we were not involved. I hated that moment. I could see in that moment how difficult this was going to be and that no one else would ever see it the way we saw it because everyone else would be looking down a path something having already happened. Everyone else, whether they wanted to or not, would suffer from a comfort, I mean, a hindsight bias. And that's all, that was prophetic. I've seen that a lot. But I'm, even if people disagree with the decision, I hope they see that it was made in the right way for the right reasons. I'm very proud of the way we went about making that decision. So I'll, I'll stop there. What was it like 
meeting Donald Trump and how do you view him now? We're recording this interview in sort of early-ish May and I think it will go live in a few weeks' time. So a lot can change in those weeks. But at, at this point, Donald Trump looks like he will be the Republican candidate for the presidency. What was he like in person? And how do you see him now? He reminded me of a mob boss. And I was so <laughs> struck, rattled by my reaction that I tried to push it away. And it, images just kept popping into my head as I watched him interact with a group of people. This is before he was elected. And I was sitting in a conference room to brief him. And that image kept popping in my head. And I thought, stop that. And I pushed it away. And the more I interacted with Donald Trump, the more accurate I came to believe that initial reaction was. He is the most needy. I've never met an adult with a greater a hunger like his for affirmation. Never. I met children like that, but never an adult. And he is, it became clear to me, it was and still is, a really bad person. And I know when I say that, some people will react and sort of, come on, that's hyperbole. No, no. He is a really bad person. So bad that it's very, very difficult for people to conceptualize. And Americans obviously endow in their mind the office of president of the United States with a certain dignity and a certain respect. And so it's very, very difficult to imagine a person that bad, a truly amoral person as president of the United States. No politicians are angels, but this is in a place that's so far out there that people can't think about it. And so that's part of his, magic is the wrong word, part of his the good fortune he has is that good people can't picture him. They just cannot imagine that being lied to on such a scale and in such a way, and there's a power in an odd way to that. Knowing everything that I know as a regular bloke about Trump, everything I've seen about him, it's still astonishing to hear someone with of such authority as yourself speak like that about a man, as you say, who was president of the United States and held an office for four years that is invested with such prestige by the American people and that made him the most powerful human being on the planet. Final question, very different. What are your interests and passions outside of work? Clearly passionate about writing, clearly passionate about family. You like to do some bird watching. You love nature. What might we be surprised at that we don't know about you? What, tell, tell us what gives you pleasure outside of all of that. I have come to love yoga, which may surprise people. I'm much more flexible than I appear sitting here. But I, for the last three years, I've been doing yoga with my spouse. And I was at first sniffed at the idea of people stretching on the mat and saying namaste or some nonsense. And I, I've, it's really an important part of really my relationship with my wife, but also my day. And I think that might surprise people that I'm not literally as stiff as I may appear. James Kobe, it's been really fascinating to talk to you. As I said, I could have asked you many, many more questions. I've, I've tried to take in the in the novel as well as get a wider sense of you as a, a, as a and your career, but also you as a person. And it's been riveting. So thank you very much for answering my 20 questions. Great questions. Thank you, Matthew.